Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, outdoor adventure with Mandela on the Trail 1033. We are recording on location in southern India in the state of Kerala. We're in Kovalam. Kovalam used to be a quiet fishing village. It's still a fishing village, but it's now a destination to come and study yoga and receive Ayurvedic treatment. I am sitting here with Didi Kalika. Didi is an Australian yoga teacher who first went to Mongolia in the early 1990s and now is the director of the Lotus Children's Center, an orphanage in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Like I said, Didi came to Mongolia in the early 1990s to teach yoga and meditation and was moved by the plight of the children on the streets of Ulaanbaatar. Starting from a single apartment, Lotus has grown to house, feed, care for, and educate 80 children. At one stage, Lotus was caring for around 150 children, including many abandoned babies. Now the economic situation in Mongolia is better and babies are abandoned less and less. First of all, thank you so much, Didi, for agreeing to meet me on the trail less traveled and doing this interview last minute. You're welcome, Mandela. Nice to meet you. Didi, my first question for you is where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up on a farm in Australia. This closest town is called Mawela, which is an Aboriginal name. I grew up on a thousand-acre farm with my six other siblings. It's a wheat and sheep farm, so it's a little bit isolated from the town. So mainly I spent a lot of time with my family, my brothers and sisters, and it was a wheat and sheep, some cows and other animals as well. So that's where I spent my childhood. And that's just in New South Wales. It's on the Murray River, close to Victoria. It's a very southern New South Wales where I grew up. So for someone listening who's never been to Australia and doesn't realize how massive Australia is and the different environments and climates and areas and cultures and languages that are actually spoken in Australia, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think Australia is a really diverse place. You know, I've traveled many countries in my life, but I think Australia, you really get a bit of everything. In the northern parts, you've got tropical areas, there's large desert areas, there's mountainous areas, and the beautiful beaches, rocky areas, so you have great variety. And you have the colder areas in the south, if you go down to Tasmania and different parts of Victoria, even New South Wales, where it's quite high and you get snow, and then you can be up in the tropics as well. A lot of variety. The area I grew up is really like a farming area. It's flat land. When I started to travel, it's like, oh, it's a little bit boring. <laughs> it's all flat, but, you know, it has its beauty. and It gets very hot in the summer, and the winters can get down to zero, but not so often. The heat in the summer in that part of Australia is very, very dry. You get up in the 40s, and it's very fire-prone area. 
which um, I just spoke to my mother today and she said she had a fire on the property just a few days ago managed to get the fire trucks to get it out that was just from a branch falling onto some electric wires and it started a fire Australia is a really big country and very very diverse landscapes Didi, you said that you grew up on a farm nearby the Murray River. And one thing that I noticed about many of the rivers in Australia, I guess, particularly the Northern Territory, was that there wasn't necessarily water in the rivers year-round. Many of them, you would find water if you dug down a few feet. Talk to me about the Murray River and if there is, in fact, water in it year-round. Um, it does have water all year. You will find there's different older streams. There's a few different streams and areas where there's not as much water. Well, it's the main river I know in Australia, so I don't know how to compare it. As I said, it's a farming area, so there is a lot of farms along there. There's a lot of gum trees. There's also different lakes off it. Where I grew up, there is a lake, but it's actually an artificial lake, and they made a weir there. A large amount of land has been flooded, and I would say it's maybe 70, 80 years ago they did that. So there's still dead trees in that lake, but that was to preserve water. I did spend some of my teenage years, I was trained as a rower and used to row on the river. So there's some really beautiful areas on that river, but that's a big river. I think it always has water. So I think more in the north, in the Northern Territory, those areas, you get dry rivers and which can flash flood also, yeah, a lot. But I think the Murray doesn't tend to flash flood, yeah. Didi, I'd like to ask you about your travels before Mongolia. You said that you've traveled much of the world. Over the years, a lot since I've been in Mongolia, just by chance. And even like this travel, I really realized today that now I'm in Kerala because I came to do this Ayurvedic treatment. And I was going to spend a few days in Sri Lanka. But one of the children who I looked after today, who's now in his 20s, by chance he happens to be in the Maldives, which is just near Sri Lanka. I probably will go and visit him next week. And he's a boy who I knew from the street when he was a young boy. His mother was living in the street, and he was living in the street, and he grew up with us. He had some hard time a few years ago. He actually got in jail for years he spent. He stole some shoes and ended up in jail, but now he's got this job in the Maldives, so I will go to see him, which will be an adventure next week. The other travel adventures, more from my interest in yoga meditation, has kind of taken me to many places. But actually, the first time I left Australia, I went to New Zealand, which is quite close to Australia. But then in my early 20s, I went to India for the first time, which was kind of a long, cherished longing. I'd always wanted to go to India, so I first went in my early 20s and have been back many times. Then wanting to go further with the meditation side of my practices, with the yoga and meditation organization, which is called Anandamaga. I wanted to train more in the meditation, so decided to do that. The organization has a place in Sweden, which is not somewhere I really wanted to go for any reason, because I don't really like cold weather. And I didn't have much interest in Sweden, but I did end up studying in Sweden for two years in meditation. 
when we're in Sweden, we train to be a nun or monk. It's a training school in a very small village called Idrafors in Sweden. So from being in Sweden, then went to other places in Europe, just nearby. And that was more to survive, actually. We used to sell marionettes and postcards and different things. We called it cookie selling. We would sell door to door just to make some money because the people in the meditation training center, a lot of them came with no finances. And from there back to India after two years and been to many places in Asia, as I've been in Mongolia, but I go to meditation retreat in Taiwan once or twice a year. I've been doing that for more than 20 years. When I finished my training in India, after Sweden to India, then we volunteered to be anywhere. So I ended up in Tokyo, which was probably the last place I thought I would like to go to. But that was interesting to live in Japan. I lived there for three years. First, I found the Japanese lifestyle quite a strict lifestyle in a way. There's a lot of customs and Japanese people are very polite, so you should learn to be extremely polite. When I was in Japan, I ended up running a small preschool or play school for children, which I took over from another woman. And it was a small school. We had around 15 children and we used to do Montessori teaching with them. That was really nice to get to know all the Japanese children. They have a lot of pressures on them from quite young with their education and to get into good schools and it's quite hard for the children. So we tried to make our school a little more relaxed where the kids could express themselves more and they weren't under as much pressure. Also in Japan I taught English to children mainly. From Japan I actually had to go out on visa runs so often went to Korea and Thailand and back to India and various places to fulfill my visa needs. Over the years, I've seen most of Asia, sometimes for visa runs, sometimes attending some meditation conferences. I've been in Philippines and been through Thailand and different places, going to different programs. And slowly seen a lot of the Asian countries, which yeah, I really feel at home in Asia. I feel like totally at home when I land in an Asian city or travel through an Asian city. I hadn't been back to Australia from when I left. I hadn't been back for eight years, and when I landed... I think I landed in Brisbane. It took me a long time to get out of the airport. I didn't know how to use the phone, how to do many things. So it was just kind of climatized back to that culture. Various things tend to take you to different countries. A fundraising for the Children's Center. I went on the Mongol Rally a few years ago. So that's a rally where you drive from London to Mongolia. So going through many European countries and then going through Turkey, Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, through Siberia and coming back through Mongolia. And since then I've been back in quite a few of the Central Asian countries in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and back into Russia. Well, Russia's just next door, so I've been to Russia quite a few times. I drove across Russia last summer to a retreat, just to attend a meditation retreat right over near Banol. So it was like a 6,000-kilometer journey. I was meant to have another driver who ended up having the wrong visa, so, so I ended up being the driver. And I went with one of my girls from the children's center. Anyway, it was worth it. So get to go to different countries and visiting people also. Like sometimes you just got to, okay, I will really go and see you. I've been talking for years. This time last year I was in Haiti visiting a friend who does something similar to me. She's been in Haiti maybe 15 years and I met her when we were training in Sweden so I went to see her in Haiti. 
she has around 12 children she looks after and she has a really nice school she runs and she has a couple of schools actually. She started another school after the earthquake just to care for kids in difficult situations. And from there I also went down to a friend living in Peru. She lived in Japan when I was in Japan, so I got to know her in those days. And she's been in Peru maybe seven or eight years. What she does is a project with women making dolls. Two different groups of women, also with deaf women, she does another project of making fruit, which they use in schools, and making children's clothes. So just visiting people and attending different programs and some fundraising and just life really takes you in many different directions. You just have to follow your heart and see where it brings you. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested outdoor adventure series. We are recording on location in Kovalam, southern India, and I am speaking with Didi Kalika. Didi came to Mongolia in the early 1990s to teach yoga and meditation and was moved by the plight of the children on the streets of Ulaanbaatar. Starting from a single apartment, Lotus Children's Center has grown to house, feed, care for, and educate 80 children. At one stage, Lotus was caring for around 150 children, including many abandoned babies. Now the economic situation in Mongolia is better, and the babies are abandoned less and less. When we come back, I'm going to talk to Didi a little bit more about the Lotus Children's Center in Mongolia. But Didi, tell me about where you are sitting right now. Can you hear the birds? <laughs> They're chirping away. Well, I'm surrounded by palm trees and beautiful plants. And it's a humid evening. And we're in a garden, which is very beautiful. Kovalam is actually a very beautiful place. As Mandela was saying, it was a fishing village. You still have the men fishing in the mornings with lots of tourists and people from all different countries walking by, sometimes helping to pull in a net. I came around six years ago, and I've, I've actually seen a lot of changes in six years. What I saw in the last six years, I would say now it also caters for a lot of Indian tourists, which is an interesting change. Even some of the Indians have told me before they weren't welcome in the restaurants here, but now the restaurants very much welcome them to survive. They say there's less foreign tourists and there's more and more Indian tourists. It is a very beautiful place. It's a beautiful beach. Many people you'll see come for the Ayurveda treatment and yoga here. You don't realize how many people there is actually till you see them eating in the restaurants in the evening. The Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs are made possible by the support from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon can offer you a subscription-style payment method in the amount of your choice in exchange for priority access to the Trail Less Traveled visual series, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes footage, and ad-free podcasting. Please consider helping keep my fiscal raft afloat by visiting patreon.com slash trail less traveled we are sitting on location in Kovalam, southern india it's nighttime it's dark 
It's still very, very warm and humid, and we're sitting in the garden of the Maharaju Palace. It's a beautiful garden filled with a plethora of flora and fauna, palm trees and exotic flowers. I'm sure if a botanist was sitting here, they would have a wonderful time identifying. But what's always caught my eye sitting here is this beautiful vine that's growing up the coconut palm tree. And one day, maybe the vine itself will cover the entire outside of the palm tree. There are coconuts dangling above us precariously. Every now and then you hear them hit the rooftop and you get a fright for a moment, then you realize, oh, it's just a coconut. But uh, we're close enough to the ocean to be able to hear the waves in the background. I'm sitting here with my new friend, Didi Kalika. And she is a Australian yoga teacher and meditation teacher. Didi came to Mongolia in the early 1990s to teach yoga and was moved by the plight of the children on the streets of Ulaanbaatar. Starting from a single apartment, the Lotus Children's Center has grown to house, feed, care for, and educate 80 children. At one stage, Lotus was caring for around 150 children, including many abandoned babies. Now the economic situation in Mongolia is better, and babies are abandoned less and less. Didi helps to educate, provide security and independence to these children. And I'm going to hand it over to you now, Didi. I'd love to hear the story of how the Lotus Children's Center came to be from the very beginning when you first went to Mongolia. Ulaanbaatar in the early 90s in well, Mongolia was just coming out of communism. It wasn't officially part of the USSR, but it had been run as such. So the economics, most of the money was coming from Russia, and suddenly it stopped. So Mongolia had a small revolution, a hunger strike and protests for a few days, and then they decided they weren't communists anymore and that they would set up their own government. It was a bit of a shaky start because the new politicians were students and so it took a lot of time to get things into place and as they'd lost a lot of their support from Russia, their economics was very difficult. So people were guaranteed in the communist time more or less jobs and places to live and suddenly all that security was gone. So it was a fairly shaky time for many, many people. And families which had a hard time or there was any difficulties, especially there is something left from Russia, which is a lot of alcoholism. In the situations where time's really tough, it's the kids who really suffer. So there actually ended up being quite a lot of kids coming into the streets in those years. Of course, there will always be families which will break down and children will be in some situations. And, you know, I have heard since they did have an institution for that, but it was kept very quiet and it was out of town and people didn't know much about it. So when that institution couldn't run anymore due to financial difficulties, the children ended up in the streets. And actually, Mongolians were probably shocked and they didn't have money and they didn't know what to do about it. So when I arrived in Mongolia, I started to notice some children in the street, which is okay in summer, but it's not in winter as, as winter gets so cold. So the early 90s was a lot of turmoil and a hard time for people. A lot of people ended up with nothing. And the money wasn't worth much and you couldn't buy much. Life was difficult in general. As I slowly got to know Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar, 
started to see the plight of some people who didn't have a place or were looking for a place to fit in. I'd found a place to live actually in a kindergarten. That was also because of the situation then. The government didn't have money to run the kindergartens anymore, which were all free during the communist time. Healthcare and education, like kindergartens, were free. And the kindergartens there in a lot of the Soviet countries were more like a child mining service. So they would start early morning and they would go to late evening so that women could work, which was part of the Soviet system. The kindergarten was quite empty and they said I could live there and they gave me a big part of it because there wasn't money for kids to come so there wasn't children in the kindergartens. Well, not many. We made an arrangement, I would teach some English for the children whose parents could pay something. While I was living there, there was a playground which had a toy house and I noticed the children would play there but after some time I realised, you know, these kids, they're not going home. They're staying in this playground and in the toy house. The ages varied, 9 to maybe 15 or something. And those children would start to ask for water when they realised I was living there. And they also had quite a lot of infections and sores. So when they'd ask for water, I'd start to fix their infections. And what happens when you live in the street? You end up with lots of lice and scabies. So they had a lot of these kind of infections just got to know them through this and, and they were pretty brave kids they would also join me I, I used to go running in the mornings those days and many of the kids would come and join me for a morning run at six o'clock then I realized sometimes they would just come around for company to have someone to hang out with actually I didn't speak much Mongolian at that time and I found putting some pens and some pencils and paper the kids would draw pictures and you could tell a little bit about their life and how they felt so it was an interesting way to get to know them. And with some of my yoga students would start to spend some time with the kids. Some in the beginning were really bad kids and, you know, they'll steal everything and shouldn't let them in the house. But they would come around sometimes when the kids were there and then they found they enjoyed their company. And so it was good. They started to spend time with the kids. So then I could start to understand more of the children's lifestyle. There was the city government place where they were keeping a lot of the kids. The conditions in that centre wasn't so good, but it was a home for the kids. If they left there, if they had any conflict or they left there, then they were in the street. With my yoga students, we started to go there and do some drama and singing and various activities. So we came up with different ideas of what to do things just to give the kids a bit of joy. And from that, getting to know those children as well, the other children met in the street, actually started to see kids everywhere, every bus stop and wherever I was, would see this whole community of kids who were living on the street and seeing their situations pretty bad. At some stage, I realised that really their families were too broken down to look after them. A lot of their parents were drinking and not looking after them at all. And some of them were demanding their kids to bring money by prostitution or stealing or any way. And that was used for alcohol. So the kids were really suffering in this situation. One of the girls told me that she'd been sold to someone to prostitute and she didn't even know about that. And then the man was trying to rape, get her and, and she would have been raped. And she asked me if, if she could kind of hide out with me. So I kept her for some time and that was the first 
child which I looked after from the street and found that there was many other girls in this situation. So the birds are getting quite loud now. So that was one of the first girls who stayed with me. Also there became a number of boys also. The boys' lifestyle was different. They had to steal to make their money. And in some ways their lifestyle was a bit easier. They tended to work more nine to five where the girls worked evenings. Mm -hmm. And they had quite a bit of fun stealing. Well, you listen to their stories, you know. The first group of boys I knew, they were a little gang. They were called the Dalai Edge, which means mother of the ocean, though there is no ocean in Mongolia. But there was a market called Dalai Edge. And they tell stories how one would hide behind and they would just pull down the sausages till they got the whole bunch down and just kind of lots of the stories of their stealings. They tended to enjoy themselves more than what the girls had to go through. And so the girls I saw more in the daytime and the boys I saw more in the evenings. But also stealing, you know, it can be pretty tough. You get beaten up and it's also not the best lifestyle. And when you do that for a long time, it tends to wreck your morale also. What I found also, the children would start to get into drinking vodka. When I was there in the 90s, early 90s, the currency pretty much was vodka. So a lot of things were paid in vodka. And I know a lot of the girls, when they're prostituting, they were paid in vodka. Some of these girls were 12, 13, 14, so not a very good lifestyle. Also, the girls were first pimped by some older people, but then they started to do amongst themselves, which became quite dangerous also. Some of those girls who I'd met who were 14, 15, two of the girls were murdered. The kids, a lot of them those days, they were living under the ground, call it tantra, but it's like on a street you'll see a round opening and it goes down under the street to where there is a plumbing system. In Ulaanbaatar, the whole city is kind of on a central heating system. There's a big coal power station and they run hot water pipes right through the city. So this would be running under the ground in most places. So the kids would go down under the ground and stay on the pipes or near the pipes. Also, there would be some sewage pipes, but many there was these hot water pipes. There was a few burns and things from some of the kids if the steam came out because it's steaming hot water. So that's used to heat and pump hot water to the apartments and heat all the big buildings and apartments, not the smaller buildings. Mongolia also has a lot of yurts or gear, G-E-R, it's the uh, felt homes. They're not heated by the central heating system. But anyway, the children were living down in these places. Not a very safe place to live for the children. So when the first girl who was hiding out, she stayed with us. I was living in an apartment and first she stayed there, but what actually happened was the neighbours and the people around didn't appreciate all the kids coming around and... They're bad, they're still, they're destroying our reputation, you know, you can't have the kids here. What I ended up doing was getting a place out, it's called the Gihoro. There are places out of the city, on the outskirts of the city, where people live in the yurts, in the gears, and small houses they've built themselves, or any kind of housing, mainly self-made housing. But you can have a yard, you can have a bit of land, so I got a place just out of the city, cheaper to live out there, though there's no running water. You have to carry water and then you have to get coal and wood and heat yourself. 
the kids could blend in more and we didn't have the neighbour problem because we had a yard. I found like a family house, which was probably for about a family of seven people. But very soon, once I started looking after one girl, other children started to come. So within a couple of months, we were about 30 living in that house. And I think we went up to about 50 in the house, which was far too overcrowded and it was a fairly hard conditions. Also, I didn't have much in the way of money myself to look after them. So what I had to do in the first years, because with my yoga meditation group, they had a place in Taiwan. So I used to go to Taiwan like twice a year. So when I would go there, with some of the people I knew there, I would get them to go with me. And in the street, we would sing in the street. Not that I'm much of a singer, but we would get someone else to do more of the singing. But we would do some like chanting and we'd put some cans and we'd collect money this way. So I'd do that for a week or two and get a few donations from some of the people who I knew practice meditation there. Actually, there's a lot of Buddhists in Taiwan. Not that my practice is exactly Buddhism, but I follow Nandamaga and Yoga Meditation Group. It's quite a generous culture, so it was a fairly good place to collect some donations. I get a little bit of money so I could go back to Mongolia, and then I usually try and keep enough money to be able to catch the train and the plane back and try to live for some months, feed the kids. So that's how I survived. And the first children which I had were in the first year... I would say the age is probably from 8, 9, 10, and then teenagers up to maybe 15. So mainly younger teenagers. After the first year, the police brought me just a newly born baby. The detectives had found out I had the sister and that this baby they'd found was left somewhere. I did know the mother because I'd seen her in the street. She was living in the street and her kids were also living in the street. Some of them came to live with me. I told her that, you know, the police have found your baby. I'd known actually that she was pregnant. I'd asked her where was the new baby and she'd actually told me the baby had died. I was a bit surprised to find the baby hadn't died. She said, you know, I don't want it. I said, okay, then I'll look after her then if you want. And so that was the first baby I had. But within a few months, I think I had about four or five. And at one stage I had 20 babies under one. Some of them, the people who lived in the street, who I got to know many of them, they would maybe come with some other person who was living in the street or had had some difficult situation and ask if I'd look after their babies. Sometimes the police would call us or the hospital. Some babies were left in the hospital. Maybe people will wonder how that happened, but like some women, they just had nothing to go home to and no stability, nothing to bring the child home and often they didn't have a home to go to, so they would leave the babies in the hospital and hope for the best. So some of those babies ended up in Lotus and have grown up in Lotus. The 90s, also the beginning of 2000, there seemed to be a peak of abandonment in that state, that time. The police used to hold a lot of children. They had a centre. It was a bit drab. The kids were kind of locked up there. Kids who were found on the street or people had found somewhere or they would do something which they called sweeping the street. If there was some dignities coming to towns from other countries or when they have their national festivals and things, they would say they would sweep the streets. So they would actually do a pick-up of all the kids living in the street and then they'd lock them up. 
it was actually an old kindergarten, I think, but the kids were basically locked up there. They'd have their heads shaved, which is understandable because a lot of them had a lot of lice. At one stage, they put the boys in dresses so that they couldn't run away because they'd be too shy to go out. The kids weren't so happy there wasn't that much to do. With some of the people who worked with me, we asked the police, well, maybe we could do some activities here so that kids weren't so bored because actually there was no way I could take all the kids because the police sometimes would pull up with a van of 15 kids or 20 kids take what you can. So I couldn't always take all of them. I would take the youngest, the girls, and see how many I could fit. And actually, some of the kids, they really didn't want to. They got used to the street life, and they really didn't want to come in. I think some kids, they drop. They might have last five minutes. The police would go, they'd say, I need to go to the toilet, and then they'd run back to the street. So it wasn't like everybody wanted to come off the streets. I would say that was more the boys because they tended to have more fun than the girls on the street. But where the police held the children, we ended up having a playroom there with books and kids could draw and play, do activities. Got to know a lot of the street kids that time and I ended up taking a lot of kids from there. That's when I think we went up to 160 kids. The houses were so full. We had a lot of gears. So the system I ended up making was keep putting up more gears. So our yard was full of gear, but I would keep in one gear eight to ten children and then one house mother. So some women, if I could give them job, if I had enough money to give them job, I'd pay them. Some of them also needed some support. Sometimes I kept them and a few women with their own children who didn't have any places to live, so they ended up living and being carers for the children. At first, the children weren't accepted in the local schools. They said they're from the street, they're bad, you know, we can't teach them. But if we would pay a bribe and this and that, give them a few things, then they would take the kids. So we managed to get some of the children into school. I sent a lot of kids to the kindergarten, but we found that the teachers didn't really teach them. I said, oh, well, they don't have parents, and so actually started a kindergarten. I ended up having a volunteer Scottish woman who was living in Mongolia, and she heard I was building the kindergarten, and she said she'd maybe stay for six months, and she actually stayed for five years, and we managed to have a really nice kindergarten and then primary school. So we're educating the kids ourselves, but was managing then to get them into the secondary schools. And actually through getting to know more and more people in Mongolia and also starting to meet with different organizations and also with some government members, with some other NGOs, we started to make a dialogue about that these children needed to be accepted in the schools and in the hospitals which has come to pass, children are now accepted. Now it's not a problem for me to send them to the local kindergarten or primary school or secondary school or hospital, which wasn't always the case. It was very hard to get the children into the hospitals in the first years. And sometimes we were told, well, we don't care if they die. If they die, you know, get them out. They don't have a right to be here. So it was very hard medically in the first years. But now the children are accepted in all the institutions, which has been a necessary change because, you know, we did lose some children not being able to get medical care, which were probably the hardest days, having children die. 
there were some hard times. Some of the babies were very sick and very bad conditions and extremely low birth weights. And a lot of them, they were less than their birth weights. So I had a number of children, just kilo, 1.3, 1.4, 5, kilos. So that was when some of them were a couple of months old, but they'd been living in very difficult situations. Some of them with alcoholic parents who were taking care of them. I was saying all these years there's been lots of changes in all these areas in Mongolia. So life has changed a lot. Probably the picture I've painted, it sounds very devastating and very low standard of lifestyle, but that's actually really changed in Mongolia. What actually happened in Mongolia in 2005 or seven or something became very easy for investors to come into Mongolia and they started to mine in Mongolia. So the country's changed that it there was a mining boom in 2011. Then there was problems with that and it's gone down a little bit. But the country's changed a lot in all those years from what services there was for children and for the average Mongolian has changed a lot. So it's not a difficult situation. There's still, of course, kids who need to be in care who have difficult situations. There's still a few children abandoned, but nothing near the numbers which we had in the early 90s and early 2000s. So I think if you were to visit Ulaanbaatar today, you won't see many children in the street as they were in those years. Those years, you would see children trying to make a home for themselves, different parts of the street, but you won't see much of that now. Life has got better, and there has been a lot more opportunities for Mongolia it was a very close country before and cut off and a lot of Mongolians have gone as laborers to say South Korea and other countries and sending money back to family. So probably average family gets more opportunities and they're not as desperate as what they were and they're not as many difficult situations. Because those years it was difficult for people food. I actually did run a soup kitchen for a few years because people couldn't get food. They couldn't afford food. And the authorities were asking me to look after the children, but it was really the parents. What I found, the parents didn't have money or didn't have food, so we tried to help them out with food. And at some stage, we got them to do different work. Had a small business sewing bags for the mining company as mining was starting, and some of the women from difficult situations would sew the bags and they could make some money and then feed their kids, and then I didn't need to do the soup kitchen anymore or a women's shelter at some stage. I had women and babies because it was no point in me just taking their babies if the mothers were there and if they could look after them. So I had a women's shelter for some time. Lotus these days, where we lived, we lived in one part of town where I told you we lived in many years and small houses. Now, since four years ago, we moved to another side of town where I managed to get from the government 10 hectares of land and we built new buildings and the children have 10 hectares. So before there was very little when we had all the gears because there's so many, there was no place to walk around much. So now they have a lot of space. I've tried different ways also to feed all these kids and to pay people to work, need some income. So a lot of the money over the year has been various donations but also we're running a guest house in the city and that's accommodation for travelers and it's managed by one of the older girls who used to live in Lotus and some of the children who used to live in Lotus they work there 
Over the years, I ended up taking care of kids who have disabilities, who had no place in the system. So there were maybe there's about 10 children, and some of them are now reached 17, 18, 19, and no one wants to employ them, and they're not very employable. So just trying to start a small business for them. So in the next stage, I hope to start up our vegetarian cafe. So that's Lotus today. There's been quite a few hundred children who've lived in Lotus. I didn't count them all, but um, probably more than 500 children who have called Lotus home at some stage. And some have stayed for, for months and some have stayed for years and some have stayed their whole lives so far. So it's been a home for many children and hope we can continue as well because for many children that is their home and that's where they've spent their childhood before they go out into the bigger world. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested outdoor adventure series, recorded now on location in Kovalam, southern India. I've been speaking with Didi Kalika. Didi came to Mongolia in the early 1990s to teach yoga and meditation and was moved by the plight of the children on the streets of Ulaanbaatar. Starting from a single apartment, Lotus Children's Center has grown to house, feed, care for, and educate children. At one stage, Lotus was caring for around 150 children, including many abandoned babies. You can find out more information at lotuschild.org. Didi, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you of your work and travels in Mongolia. This song is really about the Lotus Children's Home. Actually, one of the volunteers I had put it on a video, and with sort of shots of the kids. The song is called My Love Will Take You Home. Lotus as a home for the children to feel, you know, whatever happens in their life, that they've got a home and that they should never feel neglected, that they don't have a home. It's really just a song of feeling about the Lotus Children's Centre and a home for the children.
But I'll hold your hand, it's alright We'll find the courage to fight You are on the trail less traveled featuring the Lotus Children's Center this evening. The Lotus Children's Center is a orphanage in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, helping vulnerable children by providing shelter, care, and support to build happy and positive futures for the children of Mongolia. You can find out more information by visiting lotuschild.org. We are recording on location in Kovalam, southern India, and I am speaking with Didi Kalika. Didi came to Mongolia in the early 1990s to teach yoga and meditation and was moved by the plight of the children on the streets of Ulaanbaatar. Starting from a single apartment, Lotus Children's Center has grown to house, feed, care for, and educate 80 children. At one stage, Lotus was caring for around 150 children, including many abandoned babies. Now the economic situation in Mongolia is better and the babies are abandoned less and less. Didi, thank you so much for joining me on The Trail Less Traveled and recording this interview with me here in India. Let's end the show with three adventure tips. Those who don't plan and kind of organize ahead, things work out fine because I'm one of those people. I don't tend to book things ahead or I like to get my flight last moment in case other things come up. I think because every day is a bit of adventure, I'm not sure what will come up, so I don't like to be booked anything ahead so I would do it the last possible moment often I buy my tickets the day before you don't need to worry you will get to wherever you want and do whatever you know it will fall into place you don't have to do everything ahead and check it out and it makes more excitement because you don't know what you'll find because you haven't researched anything beforehand Another tip I think it's more general for life is that as adventurers you maybe think that a venture person might be very free and not have commitments but I think commitments and responsibility is an expression of love and at times you can't do maybe enjoyable things we want to do but through those commitments and responsibilities that brings us on an adventure because we're committed to something or to people or in this case to children and that brings us so many adventures we would never expect to have one thing for me I really don't like cold weather but you know I live in one of the coldest countries in the world but it's a wonderful adventure learning to live in that kind of climate and just the various things which happen every day which actually comes out of just a a commitment and taking on a responsibility. My third one would be something which I heard from my guru, my teacher, Nandamoti, which is, we're never alone or helpless. The force that guides the stars guides you too. I always feel that I'm guided. And all those stars, there's so many stars, they have everything working as it's meant to be. I'm sure for like myself, I feel that I'm guided all the time. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure series, which airs every Sunday night at 6 and Tuesday night at 10. The night show was recorded on location in southwestern India in the garden of the Maharaju Palace, a stone's throw from the Arabian Sea. I would like to thank my guest for this week, Didi Kalika. Didi came to Mongolia in the early 90s to teach yoga and meditation and was moved by the plight of the children on the streets of Ulaanbaatar, the coldest capital city in the world. Starting from a single apartment, 
Lotus Children's Center has grown to house, feed, care for, and educate over 80 children. To donate, volunteer, and find out more information, you can visit lotuschild.org. Find The Trail Less Traveled on Facebook to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. Or visit trail1033.com to podcast previous shows. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and talk to them in their natural habitat. My adventure tip this week is pretty simple. Put a jacket, coat, or sweater on before you get cold. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula. But until next week's adventure, get outside and shred the gnar. Because, as you know, the gnar doesn't shred itself. Hello there, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and I wanted to thank our sponsor, New West Knifeworks. When you love the tools you use, everyday chores become a joy. A finely crafted knife is an extension of the hand that welds it. That's the motivating idea behind New West Knifeworks founder, Corey Milligan. Milligan moved to Jackson Hole to pursue the good life in his early 20s. To earn a living while enjoying the outdoors, he worked as a line cook in local restaurants. His interest in cutlery came from the desire to make a knife that would better express his love of cooking. New West Knife Works was born out of that passion, a passion which continues to keep the company on the cutting edge. All of New West Knife Works culinary, hunting, and recreational knives are made in the Tetons with the finest American steel and tested by the professional chefs, guides, anglers, and hunters of Jackson Hole. From the New York Times and Wall Street Journal to Bon Appetit and Forbes, top tastemakers appreciate cutlery that is as beautiful as it is useful. Visit newwestknifeworks.com.